This is Geek Gab with your hosts, John, Brian, and me, Daddy Board Pig. We are back. Geek Gab for Saturday, June 10th, 2017. And before we get to the main show, um, there has been some sad, sad news today. Do you want to do you want to talk about that for a second, Dornall? Hey guys, I uh, just found out earlier this morning that the great Adam West has passed away. Uh, for all the kiddies who, who listen, Adam West did the '60s Batman television show, which was full of camp uh, and and tongue-in-cheek humor. Uh, he's a he's a great man and a great piece of our pop culture, and it's sort of it's sad to hear that he's gone. He did a, a ton of guest shots, too. Um, like, he was a regular on The Family Guy. He played the mayor. Uh, he did a guest shot on the Batman animated series um, back in the early 90s. He kept busy with a bunch of stuff um, all the way up till till now. Yeah, he, he really didn't get much in the way of acting work after the 60s, but he has been doing voice work, especially uh, The Family Guy was a huge comeback for him. Uh, so, yeah, he he stayed with us uh, until the end. Do you have any uh, any comments to add, Brian? I'll just second what Dornall said. It's a day. It's a day for Bat fans out there. Yeah, I might uh, might watch a few episodes tonight in in his honor. Or maybe some of the early Family Guy. You know, the good Family Guy. <laughs> well, that's why they let the Family Guy uh, go on for so long. It's so that when you sat down, someone could say, hey, let's watch the Family Guy. Yeah, but let's not watch those episodes. Let's go to the, let's watch the good Family Guy. <laughs> nice. Um, so, <laughs> now that we've had inappropriate humor to move us on from the really, really sad news, um... How was your week, Dornall? Uh, it's been long and tiring, and frankly, I am glad to be back to the gaming. I skipped all my gaming activities this week. Uh, there, we, I didn't do an, an extra gaming podcast. That'll be next week or the week after. Uh, just uh, played a little video games with my brother online and took it easy. And saw a terrible... I mean, saw a movie. I didn't mean to spoil, guys. I saw a movie. <laughs> How's your week, Are you saying that... I just want to confirm something here. Are you saying that Tom Cruise has finally, at long last, made a bad movie, <laughs> or, or made a poor, made a poor decision? For example, he, he normally, I mean, he's he's the smartest guy in Hollywood. He makes smart decisions as to what roles he takes. He he takes his roles very carefully. So I can't wait to to hear if if he finally uh, had a swing and a miss here. I have a lot of thoughts about that. Okay. But before we get there, how was your week? Productive. Um, I finished off another major editing project for my friend and friend of the show, Justin Knight. So I got his novel edited. And pretty soon I'm going to be moving on to a couple of other editing projects, um, including I took out a, an old trunk novella that I actually wrote four years ago. And took a look at that and it, it actually holds up pretty well. I, I was surprised. And so I'm just polishing it up to bring it up to the standard of you know, my, my current level. And um, 
Going to be looking to release that this month. Well, we're looking forward to it. Thank um, you. Wow, you you have you have been working really really hard for the last like two months. Do you ever get to take time off? No. <laughs> and it's 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 been more like the past six months. I just haven't been talking as much about it. I feel more of a need to vent now. Oh yeah, because you've had secret projects you couldn't talk about. Yeah, I actually was a, was first approached by Castellia House to do a series for them a year ago, and you know, with with traditional publishers, things take time. You know, they they have lists, they have other authors they need to work with. So there there was some back and forth, and finally we decided that um, I would do the outline. So I spent uh, like January doing that, and then I did three drafts. So that took until like the end of last month, and now I'm waiting. You know, hear back from my editors on whether they think the last draft to turn in is going to be a viable release candidate, and we're kind of hashing out the um, release schedule not just for the first book, but the whole three book series that. Um, we're kind of in talks for. So, on the one hand, it's it's great, you know, it's great to feel like uh, you get something accomplished. But there are still a lot of things that are up in the air, in in terms of that deal. So I'm trying to, you know, hedge my bets, keep myself occupied in case I've got a longer wait than I thought. All right. Well, a bunch of stuff to look forward to, um, and we will, of course, keep you guys updated uh, as that comes out. And if there is anything else that comes up we will of course let you know so the dark universe has debuted uh the dark universe is of course universal pictures monster movie universe they want to have a cinematic universe just like marvel does with uh, all the avengers properties and they decided to go back to their monster movies of the 1950s, which had, you know, Frankenstein's monster, the Wolfman, and I know there's someone out there who wants to get all technical and up in my face about calling it Frankenstein's monster, and I just want to let you know sincerely from the bottom of my heart, I don't care. I'm going to use that term because that's what everybody uses. Uh, Frankenstein's monster, the Wolfman, Dracula. So the really, really big news is they got big name stars to star in the very, very first movie of their dark universe. And of course, I'm talking about Hugh Jackman and Kate Beckinsale in Van Helsing. And that was terrible. Just a terrible movie. And so they decided uh, not to launch their monster universe their dark Holy universe cow. with uh with that movie and they decided to get uh to, to to drop back from van helsing instead of going that kind of campy funny stuff they decided to do something big and dramatic and bloody and uh of course uh they decided to pull back on the big name stars and get some second second grade stars maybe and made dracula unbound and that movie was terrible Everybody hated Dracula Unbound, so that was the second launch of the Dark Universe. And after everybody hated that, they decided to pull back from that movie and to pretend that it was just a standalone film and to re-re-relaunch, uh, or maybe I put an extra re in there, maybe it's just re-relaunch the Dark Universe with a brand new movie, Tom Cruise's The Mummy, which just came out in the last couple of days, depending on where you live, on planet Earth. And um, 
I hope I don't ruin the rest of the show, and I hope I don't ruin the movie for you when I say it's terrible. It's terrible. It's bad. It's really bad, guys. I just felt like I had to begin our reviews with that introduction because it kind of places the whole thing in, in perspective, doesn't it? We can't, like, this isn't something we can build up to. It's not <laughs> like we can say, you know, this, 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 this. But you know what? In the end, it's not really a good movie because you know what? The badness starts from, the, no, the badness starts before the beginning. Like, it, 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 I didn't know about this cinematic universe but in the in the opening uh, titles when they're doing all the studios after the universal logo they have like a dark universe logo that's sort of the universal logo you know with the globe and the lettering comes across the front only you're like behind the lettering and the the world is dark like it's in shadow and and my brain made the connection and said oh my god they're trying to do a monster movie universe this is terrible. So I had a little more forewarning than you. I knew that Dracula Unbound was an attempt to create the Dark Universe, but I did not know that Van Helsing was originally supposed to be part of it. Me neither. Holy cow. I mean, and that was exceptionally bad. And I died a little more inside. Not, not just exceptionally I, I wanna... bad. Van Helsing wasn't just exceptionally bad. It was two and a half hours long. I, I don't remember that. I must have I must have flushed that from my memory. At least the mummy was only an hour and fifty minutes. It wasn't even two hours, but Van Helsing was two and a half hours long. It was it was all kinds of terrible for almost three hours. Just awful. Uh, have you watched Van Helsing all the way through, both of you? Yeah. I think so. Yeah, I have too. Okay. And we went to really quick, really quick. We went to see it at the theater on opening night at the exuberant insistence of one of our friends, and he has never been allowed to pick the movie we see on weekend. <laughs> we told him why. We walked out and like, you realize you're not picking the movie anymore, don't you? <laughs> that is both a wise and a just decision. I think he deserves that, that call. Uh, it was campy. It was silly. It was stupid. The plot didn't make any sense. Wait, am I, was I supposed to be talking about the mummy? Okay, but, but let's be fair. <laughs> No, nothing, uh, they couldn't even accomplish campy in this Mummy movie, okay? Yeah, the Mummy movie isn't campy at all. Um, in, in fact, it's it's really, really dour and dark. I mean, they, they took that dark universe name really seriously. <laughs> oh, but uh, as you can tell from the uh, trailers and the casting, it, they couldn't keep it too dark. They had to get Jake Johnson from, uh, what's that show? With Zoe Deschanel, like the funny guy, he's he's oh, he plays yeah. a sidekick in the movie. Just in case the you were, it was girl. too dark. They're they're gonna completely clash with the tone with their comic relief. Yeah, it was kind of like it kind of reminded me of Sahara. Only Sahara was a much better movie. I like Sahara, by the way, folks. I'm a Sahara fan. So if you don't like Sahara, which a lot of people didn't, then you know, suck it. I don't care. Um, but it in okay. Sahara, go ahead, Brian. Sorry. No, I, I just want to say, yeah, it, it was okay, because I, I I appreciate Clive Cussler. He's one of those guys who writes at pulp speed, you know, just sits down, cranks out one draft, and he's done. And <laughs> yeah, you know, like like the Dirk Pitt character, it, and I I enjoyed it for what it was. Go ahead. Um, but in Sahara, 
the entire point was he had a comic relief character um, who was actually a badass. I mean, let's not let's not take that away from him. He was a competent character. He was a good shot. He was good at his job, but it was his job to, you know, say all the funny stuff and, and to be kind of silly and not get the girl. But uh, the funny character in The Mummy is not nearly as interesting, is not nearly as competent, and is not nearly as funny as the funny character in Sahara. Which is, I mean, that's kind of a crime, isn't it? That's the ultimate crime against art, is if you fail to make something funny when it's supposed to be funny, or to make it moving when it's supposed to be moving, or to make it, you know, whatever. If you fail it, if you pulled it off, it was good, then great, that's fine, nobody would care. But if you fail at it, that, then you end up uh, being talked about on shows like this, people pointing out how bad your movie was. And and we haven't even gotten to the, what's actually bad about the movie, but you can just see it on their faces. Tom Cruise and Jake Johnson, they they practically look into the camera and say, I'm trying, guys. I'm really trying to make this material work. They can't. To, so, to, to broadly answer your question, Brian... Tom Cruise was great in the movie, and it didn't help. Yeah, wow. Let's not take anything away from Tom Cruise. I there, I, I bet there have been movies where he's turned in a bad performance, but I can't think of any off the top of my head. Tom Cruise um, brings a manic intensity to his roles that, for the roles he chooses, works very, very well. He also is charming and is capable of being funny, and so he's great in all kinds of material. I mean, you want to go all the way back to Risky Business, to Top Gun. Uh, you know, these are these are really are like landmark movies in their genres. Um, and then the Mission Impossible series, which you would think should be a complete pile of dreck. And yet Tom Cruise himself as an actor always pulls off the roles in those movies. Um, I, I, I'm not saying Tom Cruise has never done a bad uh, performance, but I can't think of one. Can you guys? Oh, wait, I'm a huge fan. I, I honestly can't. And I actually discussed this. I just discussed this with some of my friends last night. And I think we came up with... Um, Two less than stellar Tom Cruise movies, but in either case, was it his fault? Yeah, he's, he's, he's super careful about the roles he picks. Yeah, he's been in bad movies, movies I haven't liked. Like uh, the most recent one where he was playing the the mechanic who kept the water thingies running. I can't even remember what it was called. It had Morgan Freeman in it, and uh, um, it, he it was a bad movie. I didn't like the movie, but he pulled off his parts really well. Oh, was he um, in Night and Day? Yes, he was in Night and Day. I think that was one we named as being, eh. Yeah, Night and Day was not a great movie. I watched it. It was okay, not great. But he himself did a, you know, did a good job. And as far as I remember, I didn't remember noticing hating his performance. Um, I didn't like War of the Worlds, Steven Spielberg's War of the Worlds. I thought that was a terrible movie. Again, Tom Cruise did a great job, so... Chalk this up as another movie that Tom Cruise does a great job in that's just not that good a movie. Um, and there's so many problems. So, If, if I may, oh, so if, I may if I may start with the beginning. We've, we've already established how before the beginning it was terrible because of Dracula Untold and, and the whole 
idea of a universe. But then the movie starts, and it does everything wrong. I'm going to compare this to the, be to the beginning of a much better movie in the same sort of vein. The movie begins with the backstory of the uh, villain, the mummy, the ancient Egyptian princess who was, you know, she got into the dark arts and she was murdered and locked away, you know, mummified and, and, uh, and locked away for all time. That's not a spoiler. That's how every mummy movie basically backstory begins. Right. But that's how they opened yeah. the movie. And, and then after that, that opening, you get all this, this background. And I'll go into why that was a mistake later. But for the beginning of the movie, they then switch to the protagonist. You know, it's Tom Cruise and Jake Johnson, and they're off in Iraq hunting treasure. And it's uh, it's sort of – it pretends to be a great opening because they have a little banter between the two, sort of establishing, you know, that Tom Cruise is the guy in charge, and they both work with each other, and, you know, they're both up to no good. You know, you get the idea that they're like roguish treasure hunters, right? And then – they talk about how their their next adventure is going to be this really bad idea, and Tom Cruise assures them, yeah, yeah, that's okay. And then they smash cut to those two running away from gunfire as they've obviously pissed off the local uh, terrorist or, or insurgent uh, group, right? They're, they're, Buckets of laughs, saying, right? Without ever saying the name, it's ISIS. Right, uh, yeah, it's it's ISIS. So so like they're, they're, they're looking for... Um, antiquities, and you know, it's it's actually works really well with today's, uh, with the story of what's going on in the Middle East, where um, all the groups out there are seizing and or destroying all the uh, ancient ruins and artwork that they can. Uh, if they're not selling it to fund their insurgencies, they're just destroying it out of religious fervor, right? So it's like it's a perfect setting for what they're doing. So am I off topic? Have either of you guys heard the theory that ISIS's official treasurer? Must be a and d fan. <laughs> no, is that because? Control? Well, because like their their official monetary system is based on gold, silver, and copper. Like they they mint gold, silver, and copper coins, and there's really no reason to do that. Or maybe, or maybe he's a they hired a gold farmer for World of Warcraft. Yeah. So just just don't either. That is hilarious. Uh, I've actually a good friend of mine works in DC. And he works. Uh, he's part of a group of archaeologists who aim to preserve as much of uh, that region as possible through the wars. Uh, he's always visiting Syria and, and uh, Turkey and all these other places. This is a serious problem in that uh, part of the world. On our corner of the internet, all we see are the people like shooting up and destroying statues. But whatever they're not shooting, they're selling. Like they 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 will move all that stuff on the black market and use it to fund their um, their insurgencies. So that's way more interesting than all two hours of the mummy, by the way. It was really interesting. <laughs> I'll continue with the actual movie comparison. So what they do, and let me explain what they did in, I explained what they did in the first scene of the movie. Let me explain what they didn't do. They didn't establish those characters very well. They didn't show them doing anything. They just talked about it and then smash cut to the funny shooting. Which movie did it right? Raiders of the Lost Ark. Mm. What happened? What was the first scene in Raiders of the Lost Ark? Anybody? Come on, folks. Brian? He's in his cave. 
He's sneaking through the cave, right, to retrieve the golden idol from South America. He's sneaking through a cave. There's a whole bunch of traps, and he cleverly avoids all the traps. Well, that's the later. The first shot is actually the Paramount logo dissolves into that hill in the jungle. And he gets betrayed by the guy and whips the gun out of his arm, and then they go in the cave. <laughs> that was an even better introduction. But that whole thing, it starts with the protagonist. You don't need the, any backstory. What you need to do is establish this character. They don't do it. They fail to establish the protagonist, and so the movie is completely ruined from the beginning. There's a, there, there's a famous, uh, famous quote from Joss Whedon when he was a script doctor in Hollywood. Every time he would be brought in to fix a script, and they say, hey, the third act is messed up. And he would always say, guys, the problem with the third act is the first and second acts. Yeah. Mm. Um, and and it, it is doubly painful later, and later in the movie when they introduce the more cinematic universal elements, and you have other characters uh, like uh, the... the Romantic interest in the, um, what's his name? What's it? Yeah. <laughs> you know, the, <laughs> how have I forgotten this guy's name? Uh, Gladiator. Um, is it what? Russell Crowe. Uh, yeah, Russell Crowe. Is it a spoiler if we give away his character's name? I mean, I want to talk about that later in the show. Maybe not right now, because I want to, I'm yeah. mad about that. I want to talk about that later in the show when we get past the spoiler barrier, which is going to be coming up sometime soon. Okay, um, I'll take – this will take ten more seconds, and then we can move on to spoilers. They're explaining things like they – we've been investigating this background, and we believe there is a mummy erased from the history records. In other words, they begin explaining all of the shit that you saw in the opening scene when they were doing the backstory. Yeah, so, the Audience you, saw that scene. You don't have to tell it to them again. Yeah, that whole beginning scene was completely unnecessary, and all that time could have been spent showing Tom Cruise and Jake Johnson getting into trouble and, and you, you learning more about who they are through more than just a few minutes of witty, witty banter. Heck, you could have actually taken two minutes of the movie and shown them sneaking up on the movie and... And stuff like that. I mean, or sticking up on the village and stuff like that. Two minutes. That's all you needed. It didn't need to be longer than that. Um, it just... Yeah, it was terrible. <laughs> From that point on, they do. the writers do everything possible to remove any sort of stakes at all in the movie. Oh. Um, what I thought when I was watching the movie is the same... Uh, criticism I have of the recent RoboCop remake, which is the movie is a series of events depicted on the screen, one after another, that don't actually form a story or a plot. They're just throwing stuff up on the screen because they're desperately trying to think of, oh, what can we do next that would look cool? What can we do next that would look cool? And there's no actual story or plot there. It's just a series of random events. Um, it's, it's, end, then rule. it's Yeah, it's what we talked about when we redid Iron Man 2 um, a, while, a couple of months ago. It's just, and then, and then, and then, and... There, there's no connective tissue to the movie. There's no story to the movie. Um, 
it's just a bunch of things happen for no readily apparent reason and and it just gets so dumb it's so painfully dumb let, let me let me back up and say other good things um for the most part the special effects are of course impeccable it's a modern movie it's a triple a movie so you'd expect uh you know you'd expect the special effects to be impeccable and for the most part they are uh russell crowe russell crowe's character um has some need for special effects at a certain point and i thought those looked terrible but the rest of the movie was was really good um i didn't notice the music being a problem so that probably means they did a good job with that that's what they say if you don't notice the music it's done well can you think of anything else that was a good thing about the movie i really can't i don't even i wasn't even impressed with the effects well, I wasn't impressed with them. I'm not saying they were, you know, blow your oh, mind. Oh, that's awesome. I'm they, saying they, they were competent. Yeah, it, it yeah. wasn't. It, it, was, terrible. it wasn't it awkward and stylized. Like we talked about Wonder Woman last week, and I mentioned the the CGI action sequences, and and the the animated superhero fights are very stylized. Like you could tell when it was a computer Wonder Woman punching and you could tell when it was a computer Superman punching and none of those artifacts were present in this film. I don't think the effects were that great or impressive, but they all fit within the film. Yeah, they, they were, they were professionally done. They were competently done, which is kind of unusual because special effects have a tendency to look fake, but you know, these didn't look, fake you knew they were special effects you have to know they're special effects but they didn't look fake um i, I will say though speaking of weird effects and costuming and things whoever thought the double iris thing was cool should not get a job in hollywood again what the hell was up with that that just irritated the hell out of me someone saw the mouth of madness um, and this is why it, it it pissed me off I have taken a long time to look at horror and the tropes of horror and the things underlining it. And, and if you want to go back and look at our uh, Penny Dreadful show, where I talked about the season and a half of Penny Dreadful, I walk, I, I get into all the theories about what horror is and what it should be. But one of the things that has to um, happen in a horror movie is that there has to be some coherence, at least in an American movie. There has to be some coherence to the monster. And I assumed that with the double eyes, the only thing I could think of is that they were going for kind of a, a spider thing. Like, because spiders have eight eyes, she had four pupils. Maybe they were going to throw a little bit of a some kind of sp spider thing to her, which I thought was terribly inappropriate. But in the end, it doesn't matter at all. Nothing. It doesn't affect the movie. She doesn't even, they don't even mention it like, oh, it's in low light conditions, but she can see in the dark because she has four pupils. Okay, at least that would have had an impact on the movie. So it doesn't fit with the monster. It doesn't fit with the theme of the monster. It doesn't make sense for a mummy to have their, you know, iris and pupil duplicated in the same eyeball. None of that makes sense. And it doesn't affect the movie at all. It's hard to understand. They actually use it. 
it, it, it does serve a purpose, but it's a meta purpose. It's, it's a purpose for the audience. It doesn't make sense in the world. It's supposed to make sense to us. <laughs> and uh, I'll explain that once we get into spoiler space. Okay, because right now it seems like just uh, showing off the CGI that they did it because they could and it would look cool. And um, the chat is talking about uh, the overuse in CGI in movies in general. And um, it reminds me, I sat down and watched House 2 again last night. Anybody remember that? Yes. Yes, yeah. an awful movie. I liked House 1, but House 2 was, was terrible. Oh, oh, that was so painfully I, terrible. That was the just, dog in it, right? The dogger pillar, yeah. But John Ratzenberger's character saves that movie as the uh, electrician slash adventurer. He had a movie reminds character. me of. Yeah, what the movie reminds me of is a, a campaign from some sort of long forgotten GURPS splat book or something. But uh, but the, the point is though, whether or not you you like the actual narrative, and yeah, it has problems with it. Um, the practical effects hold up. I mean, for, for 1986, like uh, the, the undead horse and the baby pterodactyl, even even the caterpillar dog, still look better than... It's just more, more engaging, has more depth than any CG. So those are my only point. Um... Yeah, so the pupil thing made no sense. They didn't do anything to integrate it. It wasn't explained. It didn't match the theme. It's not Egyptian in any sense. Um, I mean, they had a bunch of markings appear on her body, and they were just, they almost looked like cuneiform. They were just meaningless markings. If they had been hieroglyphics, that would have at least made sense because you're thinking, oh, okay, so she's getting, you know, marked with some kind of eldritch, you know, like me. a spell or something. Yeah, and that would have been really cool if they had done that and then called back to it later. Like, you know, they're examining the mummy and say, "Oh, well, she's got this particular spell from the Egyptian Book of the Dead," and and you know, reading the spell aloud causes something bad to happen, or it's an announcement of the curse or whatever. I mean, anything that would have made that make sense, um, other than just, "Hey, we're throwing this up on the screen because we can," and. Um, we're just because we can. Yeah, we can. Um, it's definitely uh, someone someone in charge of whatever visual design or something like that said, this would look cool. Like, like they came up with the design first, like a drawing or something. And, and I am fully in favor of things that look cool in movies, uh, especially action movies or horror movies. You have to have things that look cool. But... They have to make sense, too. And if you can't find a reason for them to make sense, you save them for another project. If you can find them a reason reason for them to make sense, then you weave them into the script, however you have to do it. Um, it just... Uh, it, it was... It was terrible. <laughs> I have to say, you two are batting a thousand on the writing advice. It's not me giving the writing advice this time, folks. It's my co-host. Listen to him. <laughs> um, so I guess we'll, uh, we've will we been banging on this movie for half an hour, so it's time to get past the spoiler barrier. We're now going to start spoiling the movie, so if you haven't spo haven't seen the movie yet, you'll want to wait to listen to the next part. If you're going to see the movie and you haven't seen it yet, you're going to want to 
wait to listen to this next part until after you've seen the movie and know what we're talking about. Um, well, the the main thing, the, the closest thing to mind is the pupil thing. It it means something to the audience because it represents being possessed by Set, the god of death, which is in, which is why it means nothing in the film, but to us at the end, Tom Cruise's no. character. It, it doesn't just mean nothing in the film. It is absolutely ridiculous to use that for Tom Cruise because the double eyes are what the mummy has. And if she had made Tom Cruise into a mummy or he had become a mummy and then got the double eyes and the stuff on his skin, that whoa, would have whoa, made whoa. sense. Well, see, now you're you're pretending like it does make sense. And I don't think they thought that one through. Right. I, 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 I'm, I'm putting I, out it's not just that it doesn't make sense. I'm putting out that even what they're using it for to show the audience that Tom Cruise is now a monster, even what they're using it for doesn't make sense. It's like you're saying, okay, this is a policeman's uniform. So we know when a character wears this uniform, they're a policeman. And then you have another character who is a fireman and you bring the fireman on stage and expect them to fight this fire. And you're shooting them as if they're going to fight this fire, but they're in a policeman's uniform. That's how stupid it is using it for Tom Cruise's care. So stupid. So stupid. It, it, so, <laughs> you see why, where, where I'm irritated about that. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I, I think by the time they got to that point in the story, because it, it feels like they just wrote the story from beginning to end, just not giving a fuck. Uh, they're like, yeah, he's also a mummy, too, I guess. Because, you see, what happens in the film, uh, I'm so glad you're still with us, Brian. You're not planning on seeing this, are you? No. <laughs> no, I'm not. Uh, uh, so in, in the, 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 what happens at the end of the movie is, and this, it could have been written in film so much better, but the idea is that the mummy can't actually be defeated. They can't win. So uh, she's attempting to bring Set into the world by sacrificing Tom Cruise's character. Tom Cruise, uh, instead of letting her do it, realizes that he can't win, so he finishes the ritual himself by suicide. And somehow, instead of turning him into a monster that, you know, it, it, I don't know, I guess through his sheer willpower or the fact that he did it to himself instead of she, her doing it, he was able to control the monster and defeat her. So that's how it, yeah. But that's those two things, as stupid as they are, not the stupidest thing in the movie. The what is the stupidest thing in the movie? The stupidest thing in the movie is that Russell Crowe plays Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. <sighs> what? Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. It, they're starting the monster universe. So Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde are Russell Crowe's character is the head of a secret organization um, in the British government whose job it is to hunt down and fight and dissect monsters. So that's what the core of the core of the uh, world is going to be about. It's basically a ripoff from Hellboy. Or the um, League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. <laughs> yeah, and, and as much as I disliked 
Hellboy, and as terrible as the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen was, they did it first, and they did it better. Um, it just, it was so painfully bad. And then, there was... And they, oh, goodness. It's, and he's also playing the sort of wise mentor, sort of guy who knows everything behind the scenes that um, Nick Fury played in the uh, Marvel Cinematic Universe. Yeah, that's who they mean him to be. They mean this monster hunting group to be kind of like S.H.I.E.L.D., and they mean Russell Crowe's character, Dr. Jekyll, to be kind of like Nick Fury. Uh. Uh, and the only joy I got out of that whole portion of the movie was I actually enjoyed Mr. Hyde. Uh, it, it felt like Russell Crowe finally had a few minutes of fun on screen. Because you can't introduce Dr. Jekyll and not have him turn, right? Yeah. Uh, turn that'd, that'd just be a waste. Turn for the stupidest reason. It's like Henry Hyde, who we don't know if this is like the original Hyde from the 1800s or if this is a modern guy who you know messed this up or what. I, it, or at least it wasn't clear to me which of those two things is true. And so I kept on thinking, wait a minute, is he like 130 years old? I mean, what, what's going on here? Or is he only like 50, 60? Um, I just, either way, he made a stupid mistake. He's been dealing with this Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde thing for a long time. And he eventually hulks out because he forgets to inject himself in time. He has to rush to his, his special injection, which keeps Mr. Hyde from coming out, and he just starts it too late. So when there's a tiny little bobble in the procedure, he ends up going nuts. And mm -hmm. and it be, what kills me is that it's something that's so important. Like, he doesn't have an EpiPen in his yeah. jacket <laughs> pocket, right? Like, no, it's 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 in a special, like, you know, zippered case that's in his de work desk. Um, that, and he's got an injector that he has to load with four different syringes that take several minutes to do. They're not preloaded. No, that's right. He doesn't. He doesn't load after each episode. He loads before each episode. Um, and th this this guy's running the international organization with a private military that rounds up monsters and studies them. Guys, this is who we're dealing with. The um, they find a bunch of crusaders underneath London. A bunch of bodies of crusaders from the Second Crusade who have been buried underneath London, which is actually kind of a cool idea. That's not a terrible idea. And these crusaders in the Second Crusade supposedly went to Egypt, and while they were in Egypt, they took treasure and brought it back with them. And one of the treasures they brought back was this special dagger of set. All of that is actually a cool idea. And that scene where they discover the corpses. Um, they're trying to dig a new underground in London and accidentally break into this catacombs that nobody knows has been there uh, because they're hidden by these crusaders. They don't ever give them a name of an order or something. The people who did this movie were really lazy asses as far as doing research. So they didn't even pick, oh, these are the Knights Templar. And there you go. That's easy. It's a Knights Templar. Or pick some other order that you know could make sense. Or research the military. Whatever. Didn't do any of that. That's actually not a bad scene. I want to say, I, it made me immediately want to get up 
leave the theater and begin an RPG campaign in that sort of setting. Yeah. What I don't understand, what doesn't make sense to me, is that later the mummy reanimates all these corpses and magically they're her army. Why are they her army? What about crusaders make them her army? These aren't soldiers from her time. It, other than just animated corpses. Um, that's and, what I got. That, that's what I figured. I figured they were just she was just animating the corpses and they were completely puppets. Yeah, see, and at that point she stops being a special monster and she just starts being a D&D &D cleric. She just casts Animate Dead because she's a really high-level cleric and that's how it all works, which... If the only way you can inject logic into your movie is by assuming it runs on role-playing rules instead of on some kind of internal sense, that's terrible. Stupid. Um, and then... Oh, we, we, sorry, weird effects. Speaking of animating the, uh, the monsters, every time she animated a corpse, all of their like, bones and things were all twisted and, and, yeah. and they snap, crackled, and popped. Even if... The, the manner in which they died, they had just fallen over and, yeah. and like bumped his head. They were laying down on the ground, normal, and yet when she reanimates them, they have to stand up and their arms are all twisted and contorted like she's pulling them out of a 10-car pileup. Um, let me tell you, folks, I am well known, because I've talked about this on the show before, I am known for being a fan of zombie movies. I like zombie movies. Um, I don't like bad zombie movies, but here's my problem with her corpses. They're not mummies. They're not animated like mummies. They don't act like mummies. They act like zombies. It's like somebody saw, um, I don't know, one of the classic Romero movies or maybe Night of the Living Dead uh, or Return of the Living Dead where the zombies were just corpses and then also went and saw World War Z where the army zombies ran along and even though they don't have as many zombies as were in world war z they still all act like those like these fast-paced frenetic zombies and i thought it was completely out of character for the mummy completely out of character for what her creature should be it just did not reinforce you here's the thing you have got an ancient egyptian princess who is effectively immortal who is alive and has been alive since the time of ancient egypt who has been kept imprisoned in a sarcophagus because of mystical um traps they set up around her because of uh mercury for some reason i don't get it mercury and and that mercury is a whole other thing the mercury uh that the sarcophagus is kept submerged and supposedly damps out um, malign otherworldly spiritual influences. And then there's a thick bar uh, or cord which forms another spiritual barrier around the mummy, um, which kind of irritated me because I wanted to use that specific element in some other, uh, some other project. And now people are going to assume I got it from the mummy. Um, and I want to let you know, I didn't steal it from the mummy. I stole it from the Jews. Um, for reasons I can go into later, why there is a high uh, cord, a metal cord, which runs around the perimeter of Manhattan. 
uh, binding it all together. That's it's for specifically a Jewish region, and I stole it, uh, but I didn't get it from the mummy. Um, and well, you want to reinforce her Egyptianness every chance you get. You want to reinforce the how ancient she is and how ancient her soldiers are and how you know you, you just you want to kind of make it be an alien intrusion of ancient Egyptian culture into the modern world because that's the only reason you have a mummy. And they don't, nothing they do, nothing about her physical design, nothing about the special effects, nothing about the way she moves, nothing about the way she talks, except they supposedly talk in ancient Egyptian at some point, nothing about the creature she reanimates, Nothing about the magical stuff she causes other than maybe a sandstorm. None of that reinforces the fundamental Egyptianness, ancient Egyptianness, the pharaohs, the pyramids, mummification, set, Ptah, Horus. Nothing they do with her and her character reinforces those themes. And so she just seems like a random monster. With vaguely death-related abilities. Yeah. She, um, summoned, she summoned a scarab once. That was pretty Egyptian. Yeah, it, it, it crawled up out of a grate and crawled into a guy's ear, and that's it. And and you don't really know why it came from or where it came from if, I don't know, a terrible is off. See, okay, let's contrast this with the other mummy, Brendan Fraser's mummy, the action comedy mummy from 1997, 1988, 1999, somewhere in there. Um, how often did they reinforce the Egyptianness of the setting and the mummy? All the time. All the damn time! He was afraid of cats. Why was the mummy afraid of cats? Because of Isis. Or, excuse me, Bast. Because of Bast, the Egyptian goddess who, who's cat-headed and cats are holy to her. All the time they reinforce the fundamental Egyptianness of the monster. That and, movie and, wasn't the Indiana Jones sequel we deserved, but it was the Indiana Jones sequel we needed. It just... <laughs> that phrase is just... <laughs> We're never going to get rid of that phrase, are we? Um, it's here to stay. You, you have to... If you're going to be creating a monster to create a horror movie or an action horror movie or whatever, like, let's talk about The Ring, because I love The Ring. I think The Ring is great. Um, and I think The Ring 2 is even really good. And, and the rest of them I, I won't even talk about. But... She has some themes. The circle, water, the tape, visual distortions, and those pop up again and again and again in the movie. Not because you necessarily need an explanation right at the beginning or halfway through, but because that's what gives uh, Samara, and, and the long hair and the pale skin, right? That's what gives her her character. 
Uh, and I don't mean that in a plot sense or in a personality sense. I mean, that's what gives her the feel of being something unique rather than a generic monster, is you take those essential elements, four or five of them, and you reinforce them whenever you can, not too much. You don't want to bore the audience or do it in an expected manner. You want to do it in an unexpected manner. But still, you reinforce those elements so people... It adds to the feel of the movie. It adds to a the emotional tone of the movie. And you want to do that enough so that your audience feels like this is a one coherent cinematic event. Or, or, or excuse me, supernatural event. And you want to contrast that with, say, The Exorcist where what they're reinforcing again and again and again is its fundamentally satanic nature of this demon who's possessed her. And not just satanic, satanic in a Christian sense, to where it is a demon who opposes goodness and righteousness and specifically Christ and Christianity so that when the priests come in, there is a clash between these representatives of Christ and this satanic evil demon. And when they say things like, the power of Christ compels you, it matters because that's the fundamental conflict in the horror movie. They didn't do any of that in this movie. So there's three examples of, of various movies with very, very different monsters, very, very different tones that all reinforced the theme of the monster in very different ways. Uh, the Mummy with Brendan Fraser, The Ring, and The Exorcist, all of those are great movies to see. Um, I enjoy all of them, so. They're good. Yeah, now that you mention it, if, I think if, if movie theaters had replaced all showings of this mummy with one of those movies chosen at random every day, the movie theaters would probably make as much, if not more, money. Oh, that's a business plan. <laughs> uh, I just... I'm trying to think. I hated this movie so much. Um... Last night, I merely loathed it, but the longer I've gone on, the angrier I get about the stupid things, because they squandered. One, they squandered a budget. Two, they squandered great actors. And three, they squandered a great concept. It, because, and I've mentioned this before in connection with the DC animated, or DC extended universe. They are not trying to make the absolute best movie they can. They're trying to launch a cinematic universe so they can make Marvel bucks. And if that's what you want to do, then you need to make the absolute best movie you can to start off the series. You do not want to half-ass it or hand the job, rush the job. And let me tell you who directed the movie and who executive produced it. It was Kurtzman and Orsi. Um, who are, <laughs> Brian, you, you're reacting to those names. I am. It's as if you said the usual suspects. <laughs> Cause yeah, those, those are the guys responsible for the uh, 2009 Star Trek. And more importantly, 
Star Trek Into Darkness. They're not bad writers. They're not unskilled writers. They have a talent for dialogue that they've shown before. They have a talent for humor that they've shown before. And they can take batshit insane scenes and string them together into a plot that makes some kind of sense. What they are, after more than a decade of doing this in Hollywood, and they were the writers on the original Transformers movie, they were called in and given two weeks to write that script. Now, if you've seen the Transformers movie, whatever opinion you have, of uh, the script in that movie or the story in that movie, realize the guys had two weeks to create all the characters from scratch, to stitch together a half dozen action scenes into a coherent whole, to add humor and characterization. And they did, especially considering they only had two weeks, they did a great job. Um, Stan Witwicky and his parents and Michaela Barnes, all of them had consistent characterizations through the movie. They all acted like who the characters were. They didn't act out of character in the movie, and that's really hard to pull off. You can remember how many movies don't pull it off, and the fact they only had two weeks to do it in is astounding. They were literally locked into a hotel room for two weeks to write that. It's astounding that they managed to pull it off. So these are, at one time, very talented people who keep on getting work because they are so talented. What I think they are nowadays is I think they're lazy. I just don't think they're willing to do the work to make it exceptional because they've had so long of being able to half-ass things and come out with great stuff that audiences love that makes a squintillion dollars. Um, I just think they've got gotten lazy. That's what makes it worse. That they are skilled. They could be doing better, but they're not. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's a, that's a, a, a strong condemnation that you could be doing the background and research or whatever to make it a great movie. And you just didn't. Um, other things that mess up the movie is they're quite clearly trying to set up this whole cinematic universe, and they spend they waste way too much time trying to do so. If you remember in the first Iron Man, there was nothing in there other than the Nick Fury after credits scene uh, to tie it into a bigger universe. And even in the other movies leading up to the first Avengers, there was only a few moments here and there, a mention here, a, a character showing up for just a minute or two, um, like Robert Downey Jr. doing a cameo in The Hulk. Um, there is not, or, or Hawkeye having a bit role in Thor, uh, or Black Widow having a, a you know completely useless and pointless appearance in Iron Man 2. But they did not spend a good third of the movies trying to set up this vast universe. They started with one movie, they made it as good as they could, and they moved on to other movies, and gradually, over the course of many movies, they built this mythology around it, but really, they waited until they had Iron Man out, they had Thor out, they had Iron Man 2 out, they had the Hulk out, until they had Captain America out. They waited until all those movies were done, then they really only established the collective universe with the movie, in which everybody appeared, the Avengers. They didn't try to rush it. They didn't try to push it. They pushed individual elements like Black Widow didn't need to be there, but they did not try to force 
Robert Downey Jr.'s first appearance in the Iron Man to be, to need to be, setting up all of this Avengers material. They didn't have to have him talking about Stephen Strange. They didn't have to have him talking about uh, Ant-Man. They didn't have to have, you know, people mentioning, oh, well, you're, ma you're making an iron suit. Well, I knew this person back in the 1950s, and his name was X and such, and he had an Iron Man suit too, only his shrunk. You didn't have to shove all that crap into the first Iron Man. Because that's not how you successfully launch a series of movies. You make individual movies the absolute best they can be, and you give it time to develop. You don't try and front load it all. You don't try and rush it all. You're here. Amen. Uh, I think this is another failure. They're going to have to re-re-restart it. Um, I just, I'm so... Oh, this is what I was going to say. They have this army of undead, and they do all the fighting for the princess. And then all of a sudden, for no reason, at one point in the movie, just when she's at her most triumphant, uh, they all just blow away, literally into sand. And there's no reason for it. Nothing. No reason. They don't just collapse on the floor so that their decayed bodies of, of bone and dried flesh lie there on the floor. They literally turn into this black powder and blow away uh, like they're obsidian sand. And the only reason that happened is so you can have a fight between Tom Cruise and the mummy. They didn't know what to do with those monsters because she has this, you know, huge zombie army that's just been kicking ass. So they just got rid of them and didn't even bother to explain it. They didn't even have her make a gesture or say a magical word. They just got rid of them. Um, annoyed me. Aggravated me. Showed that the people who were writing the story didn't think about their own story. Here's the last thing I want to bitch about. She, this character, the princess, has made a deal with Set that she'll become this monster and more, according to the movie, that she will sacrifice her lover her chosen one the person she's truly in love with so that he will become a vehicle a body that set can inhabit and exist on the earth so set himself can walk the earth now let's set aside the fact that, that makes no sense in terms of egyptian mythology um it would have made much more sense if what she was doing from the beginning was turning her lover into another mummy, and at this point she isn't swaddled up, she isn't undead, she isn't rotting, she's just kind of monstrous. She's got these glyphs that appear on her skin and the weird thing with her eyes, and that's about it. She's still pretty human. It would have made more sense for her to be her goal to be turning her lover into an immortal being like her so that they could stay together forever and rule Egypt together forever because they're immortal. It would have made more sense in terms of her motivation. It would have made more sense in terms of the mythology. And once Tom Cruise comes on the scene and gets cursed, and I want to bitch about the curse too, um, it would have made more sense with the climactic fight between Tom Cruise and the mummy because Tom Cruise basically gets the same power she has. He gets the powers of the mummy. He gets the physical appearance of the mummy. He should have been 
turned into this evil undead that instead of being turned into supposedly being possessed by Set, only there's never any sign that Set's there. You don't hear Set's voice. You don't hear, you know, you don't see Tom Cruise becoming like Set. There's nothing in the movie that indicates he actually is possessed by Set. Yet that's what we're supposed to believe is going on. Um, it just, it doesn't make any sense. They didn't sit down and think through their own climax to say, okay, instead of being possessed by Set, she's making him into something like her because she wants another lover and she's going to take Tom Cruise. Also, the curse was stupid. Supposedly, the curse that Tom Cruise got cursed with is that he is now doomed to be the sacrifice for her um, to bring Set on the earth. And I thought that was stupid because the curse in the original mummy, um, you and, and in the Brandon Fraser mummy, what was the curse? Are you asking me? Yeah, I'm just, just throwing it out there. What was the curse? Let me see. So, trip down memory lane here. Uh, spoiler alert for anyone who hasn't seen it, but again, all, all mummy movies begin the same. Uh, so, Imhotep and Ox in the Moon, who was the Pharaoh's main squeeze, had an illicit affair. Pharaoh found out. Imhotep was condemned to the curse of undeath. Um, but the curse on the people who go into the tomb is that those who deface the tomb of the pharaohs, or deface this tomb, are cursed. They're punished because they break into a tomb, they steal all the stuff. They're violating the sanctity of the grave, and forward that they're cursed, and the mummy comes back to hunt them down and punish them for it. Okay, the, the totem common thing, gotcha. So... That's that's what the curse was in the original, you know, the mummy, as far as I remember. Um, that makes perfect sense. It has thematic weight. They violated the sanctity of the tomb. The creature, uh, the person who whose tomb it was, comes back from the dead to punish them for it. That makes sense in terms of a monster or a horror movie. Tom Cruise's curse, and they never make it clear, they never really explain it because they didn't think through any of these things, makes no sense. Makes no sense. Um, he, you know, lets the creature loose, only it's not a tomb, it's actually this mystical prison because she's undead, and for that he's cursed to be sort of killed or the set thing, I don't know. It just, it, none of this made sense. I didn't think through any of this. Um, do you have anything else to add, Dornall? No, um, I just want to say that the past hour complaining about the movie has made up for the two hours I spent at the theater <laughs> last night. Thank you for letting me recoup that time and get some entertainment out of it. And I appreciate you guys and uh, everybody uh, who's listening. Um, Dornell has to take off, and we, we should take off too. We, again, we, we have been at this for an hour. But just so many stupid things. And all the big things I've talked about, by the way, are are kind of, they, they really obscure a ton of very, very small stupid decisions as well. It's not just these big things. There's a ton of small things that are really obscured because so many fundamental big things are, are done wrong. Um, 
So, has anyone in the chat seen this movie? <laughs> Not that I've seen. Okay. I know John just left to go see it. <laughs> um, all right, do you have any questions about the movie? Uh, well, so do you think that Universal has completely to their plans to launch a cinematic universe like, like are they just gonna have to go back to the drawing board after this one um they already cast the roles of the main monsters in the dark universe they already did a publicity shoot for those monsters before this movie even released um and so i think they're just going to do what dc did which is bull ahead and and hope that it won't be absolutely terrible. Hope that one of the movies can be their Wonder Woman. It's like, well, that wasn't actually a great movie, but it was better than absolutely nothing. It was better than the absolutely terrible movies that have come beforehand. So, I mean, they're, they're aiming for some kind of monster team-up, obviously, a la the Avengers. And that's why Tom Cruise's character at the end of the movie is basically left He's a wolf man. Um, not that he turns, not that he grows hair. Or he's the Hulk. Um, he has all these mystical powers that are evil, that drag him towards evil, that he turns into this monster. But he's a noble person who's fighting against all of these evil impulses, which isn't actually a bad idea. That is a classic trope that so many good monster movies are based around. Um, it just, you know, and, and so many good episodes of like Supernatural, the horror TV show are based around. It's just they they completely screwed up everything about the movie. So, you know, it's just it makes no sense. None of this makes any sense. Um, it's pointless and it's terrible and it's um, it makes you weep for. Uh, how little studios care about the art and craft of making movies. Um, they're spending this much money on it, but don't seem to care enough to make it a good or great compelling movie. So, I mean, Godzilla was setting up a cinematic universe too. But they didn't spend all of, or not Godzilla, excuse me. Uh, well, yes, Godzilla was, uh, but I'm talking about the recent uh, Kong Skull Island was setting up a cinematic universe. But they they didn't waste a third of the movie trying to set it up. So, all right. I do not recommend people go and see this movie unless... You're a writer and you want to analyze how badly a plot can be done. How to completely mess up the fundamental art of plotting. The fundamental art of here's a character, here's how they act according to their personality and their goals and their drives and their desires and their moral values. Here's a situation that makes internal sense and continuity and here's how the character interacts with that situation so that the audience can come to know the character through the choices he makes. Here's another character and the choices they make and how they interact with the first character and how all of these things 
come out unexpectedly to cause different choices later in the movie and form a coherent story. Unless you want to know how to absolutely do it badly, to not do it at all, which can be useful. If you're a writer, it can be more useful to see something done badly because then you can think of all the ways that you could have done it better or you could have fixed it or whatever. You can learn a lot from a, from a badly plotted book or a badly plotted movie. Unless you're a writer and you want to do that, I would not recommend this movie. Now, that sounds like a good topic for an on-books episode. I have to write sure. that down. <laughs> um, and I just want to contrast it, by the way, because I said this on Twitter and a couple of other places. I'm reading Snow Crash by Neil Stevenson. And I read it first probably 20 years ago, and I haven't read it since then. It's the second time reading the book. And that book is a astoundingly well plotted because I'm remembering how it ended and I'm looking at all of the elements that go into setting up that ending and all of the things that happen that are seemingly, you know, inconsequential or are colorful additions to uh, uh, what seems to be a more consequential choice. So for instance, let's say you have a movie where the main character um, makes friends with a mechanic. And the mechanic helps him fix his motorcycle and paints it red. And you think, oh, that the important thing here is this, is, this mechanic, uh, he's a Vietnam veteran, and he has a bunch of guns, and he's a really good shot. And because this is a monster movie, we'll say, you think that it's the mechanic who's going to be important later. But what actually turns out to be critical to the story is the fact that the motorcycle was painted red. And it, Shyamalanian, if that's a word. Um, he just, it, they're completely logical, completely sensible, and it's very well done. It's, it's impressively well done as far as setting up the story and the elements that go into it. Um, because... It, they're not nonsensical. They make absolute perfect sense why X and Y and Z would happen. Um, and I'm trying to think of examples of, of or analogies to it to describe it that aren't going to give away the book. But um, just if you're a writer and you want to learn how to plot well, read Snow Crash twice. Read it the first time to get through the story and enjoy the story and enjoy the writing and see how everything fits to, you know, see what happens. And then go back and reread it and look at all the elements that go into where the story uh, climaxes, how it reaches its culmination, and then trace that back through all the little elements that you didn't notice the first time or you didn't know were going to be significant the first time. So... Yeah. Don't go see the movie. That's my recommendation. Do we need to belabor this anymore, or are we... I don't. It's up to you. You're the one who, who, who I think needs the, needs the closure, <laughs> needs the catharsis. <laughs> but um, I, don't, I don't remember... I do remember a bunch of other silly and stupid things about the movie, but uh, they're not worth talking about. They're just more of the same. All of the things, all of the flaws we've talked about are not the sum total of the flaws in the movie. They are emblematic. They are archetypal for the flaws in the movie. So every other flaw you have, you will encounter in watching it has been prefigured 
Uh, it is of the same category, the same type as the flaws we have discussed thus far. Uh, so allow it to stand in with a whole bunch of other things I'm just not going to complain about. So, um, All right, do you have anything else to say before we take off? Well, before we take off, I'd just like to thank everybody in the chat, everyone who's listening at home. I'll remind you that uh, my spinoff series, Geek Gab on the Books, appears every Wednesday, usually in the afternoon. And next time it looks like we will be talking about whether or not crime and suspense stories qualify as pulp. Try to get a panel of experts together. Days, check out my books. There are links below. Secret King, Soul Cycle Book 3, currently 99 cents. And there's some dragon buzz around it, so check it out. Oh. Here's an example of how you could do it. The reason okay. why painting the bike is critical is because the paint has some kind of special admixture to make the bike shiny or whatever, to make it look better. And it's a metal that they put in the paint. And then later in the movie, it turns out that he needs to uh, take the paint because that metal in the paint can actually, if you get enough of it together, burn. And so they make uh, something like a thermite grenade with it. So that's why oh. it's important. That's why it's important that he met this mechanic even though he's a Vietnam vet and he has all these guns, those are just distractions to distract you from the fact that this special paint they painted the bike with has this metal with it. They can make um, a, a hot burning uh, grenade. Put it in a can and, and, and set this thing afire because they need fire that can't be put out by water later in the story. That's wow. an example. That's a great example. <laughs> Brilliant. That's what Neil Stevenson does in Snow Crash several times is you don't even notice that it's the paint on the bike that's what's important, not the Vietnam War vet. So that's why he's a okay. pro. <laughs> um, thanks for turning in, folks. Uh, we, as always, we enjoy having the audience, uh, having people come and listen to the show live and participate in the chat. They've had a, a ton of different discussions going on in the chat about all kinds of other things that – it's not part of the main show, and so unless you're here, unless you uh, read the chat, you're not going to get a chance to enjoy it. So by all means, if you can come and listen to the show live, do, and, and join the chat. Uh, they keep themselves entertained, and they keep us entertained. Very often they can ask questions we can answer on the show. This is Geek Gab. If you've never heard this before, we're available on YouTube.com slash Geek Gab. Or if you have an iDevice, if you have an iPad or an i, um, anything, iPhone, anything, and you want to subscribe to the podcast, just do a search for Geek Gab on the iTunes store. Or if you have some kind of Android device, some kind of Android device, and you want to subscribe to the podcast, we are also on the Google Play Store. Or if you just want to listen on the web, we're available on SoundCloud. Just do a search for Geek Gab. We're available on all those places and, of course, here on YouTube. Now, Geek Gab is not just a podcast. We are actually a podcast network now. We have two other shows. We have On the Books, hosted by Brian Niemeyer, my co-host. He just talked about next week's episode, so be sure and turn in and, and listen to that. And we also have Geek Gab Game Nights, hosted by Doran and all the other hosts who left a little bit early because um, he had to go do some stuff and we're running long. And uh, that's uh, every couple of weeks we talk about role-playing and game mastering and things like that. So by all means, if you're into tabletop role-playing games, you should turn into that show. It's great. We've had some great uh, guests. And Brian has always, uh, uh, every single show, he's had uh, some great guests on. So the gamer, or excuse me, the Geek Gab Network 
uh, has three great shows so far, and uh, we're very excited about where they're all going. We are signing off for today, folks. Thank you so much for tuning in. But don't worry. Don't you fret. We will be back.